Thank you, Brother James. Thank you, everyone. Just a, a quick note. I don't think that we've uh, mentioned this in the past in regards to the gifts and offerings. But just so that everybody knows, uh, we actually don't uh, have salaries here in this church. We are a small church that is ran by the generous gifts of, of those who, was, who attend here. And it basically goes to all the expenses to, to maintain the building. And as Brother James mentioned also, uh, to help those that need help, right? So um, when we give to the work of the Lord, that's what we're contributing to. So with that, uh, this morning we are continuing in the book of Philippians. We are finishing chapter 3 uh, this morning, coming to a passage which I believe is the high point, the climax of what the Apostle Paul is telling the church at Philippi. Uh, this morning we're going to look uh, at verse 9 through 11, but we're going to begin just a little bit before that, uh, in about halfway through verse 8, in order to pick up a little bit more of that context. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word, and we will read Philippians 3, starting in the middle of verse 8 to verse 11. And actually, by it's not the end of verse uh, of chapter 3, uh, but we're a little bit halfway to chapter 3 at this point. So, the word of the Lord reads, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning being reminded that we have no righteousness of our own, Lord. May that really ring true. May that really make a difference in our thoughts and our mind in the way that we live every day. We cannot have any righteousness of our own when we come before you. Therefore, Lord, we need your righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, in order to be made right with the Holy God. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit may enable us to understand that truth this morning, and that we will cry out to Jesus for his righteousness, for his forgiveness in our lives. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon title this morning, as I've noted there on the notes, is Are You Found in Christ? The Christian life, as we know it, comes to a point where we need to realize that our Christian walk is, in essence, preparation for the day when God decides that our life is over and that we're going to be called to give an account for our lives. So in essence, the life of a Christian is preparation for us to die. Now, it sounds pretty pessimistic, right? But in a sense, that is true. If we look at it from the point of view of the world, that's pretty pessimistic. But if we look at it from the point of view of Scripture, from the point of view of where God is looking, then we realize that there's nothing better we can do but prepare to meet Him face to face. As the scripture says, for it is appointed for men once to die, and after that comes the judgment, right? And on that day, when we meet the Lord, 
Are we going to be found in Christ? Are you going to be found in Christ? And the way that we are going to be found in Christ is if we have the righteousness that is required for us to come before a holy God. Again, we're reminded of what do, what do we mean by righteousness before God? We mean the acceptable moral standing before God. What will God accept in order to say, welcome, come in, my son, my daughter? There's a particular righteousness that is required. So this passage today, Paul's main point here is the high point of maybe the whole letter, but for sure of the warning to the Philippians. And Paul is telling them, if they are to be in good standing with God, if they are to have that righteousness required, it will be based on nothing they have done, but rather it will be because of their faith in Christ. Remember that last week we walked through what the Apostle Paul said about his credentials. He basically gave a short version of his testimony, and the Apostle Paul said, hey, if you want to look at my credentials, I score high above other religious Jews. And yet Paul said, I traded that. I traded all that for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So as we think of that this morning, about that exchange that Paul talked about, anything that we can gain, any righteousness we can have on our own, trade that for the righteousness of Christ, we must keep in mind that the Apostle Paul traded everything he had. He traded everything in exchange to gain what will save his soul. And there we're reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 25 and 26, which Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Right? It's a pretty famous passage. For our purposes this morning, we're reminded of two aspects of that passage. First, let us realize that the majority of humanity has been convinced that it is more valuable to, cha to chase after the creation, to chase, chase after the things of this world, rather than to seek the Creator, rather than to seek Christ. And hence, most of humanity is trying to gain the whole world while losing their soul. Let's chase after the things of right now and right here. The second aspect of that passage is that there are few, those that are called by God, who will not mind giving up all they have, whatever it takes, whether it's reputation, whether it's good standing with men, whether it's possessions, whether it's wealth, even health. Give it all up in order to save their soul. Right? So that's two aspects. Some will go their whole life chasing after the things of the world, and others will realize, as we discussed last week, like the two parables of the treasure of great value and the pearl of great price, that finding Christ is like being made aware of the worth, the infinite worth of Christ and exchanging all for that. So as Paul just finished explaining his brief testimony and how all the external goodness that he had gave that away, 
That is also contrasted with someone who did not do that. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Christ and asked him, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And the rich young ruler was confused because in his mind and based on the feedback he got from others, his external behavior was right on. It seemed that he was lacking nothing, but yet he knew he was missing something. And as Jesus exposed him, he realized that his heart was far from God. He preferred his high standing with men. He preferred his riches and his comforts. He says, the scripture says that he went away from Christ grieved because he had much possessions. So rich young ruler, chasing after the things of this earth, being able to take all the external goodness on, based on appearance and good feedback from others, and preferring that rather than exchanging all that for knowing Christ. So as we look at this passage, may we ask ourselves, what about me? Have I been able or am I willing to give up all reputation, wealth, possessions, comforts, in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know that surpassing joy of knowing Jesus. May we be like Paul when he was confronted with this question, what will he give in order to save his soul and be with Christ? Paul literally tells, tells us that he will give all. He has exchanged all already. And therefore, he traded a temporary loss, being able to own that loss. Traded that for an everlasting gain. So we saw that more in detail last week. So the reason, why? Why did he give that up? Because Paul came to the realization, realization that Jesus, and only Jesus, has the righteousness that is required in order to have that righteousness to be right before God on the day of judgment. And this is why Paul says that he exchanged all. And it says there in the passage we're looking at today that he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but that of Christ. So, where will we be found? Where will you be found when God calls you to give an account for your life? And that could even be in self-reflection today. Right? He's not ending our life today, as far as we can tell, it could be. But that could come in the form of realization, self-reflection. Where am I when it comes to giving an account of my life to God? Am I being found in Christ? So today we're going to look at three aspects of being found in Christ, which I've also included there in the notes. It says, to be found in Christ implies three things. We're going to look at this. First... To be found in Christ implies an alien righteousness. And I don't mean UFOs, right? And I mean something that is outside of us. Because our society is fixed, fixated on telling us just look within. Look within and you'll be able to, to be kind and be able to be benevolent towards, towards the world. And we'll learn today that's not true. Righteousness before God. Being found in Christ requires an alien righteousness. Secondly, we will see that being found in Christ 
is something that depends on faith. It's dependent upon faith. And then lastly, being found in Christ implies a physical resurrection from the dead. Okay? Those three things we'll look at today. So that when we realize those implications of being found in Christ, we can be encouraged to self-analyze ourselves and really be honest in answering the question, are you found in Christ? So let's dig right in. First, being found in Christ implies an alien righteousness. The first portion of Philippians 3.9 says, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. We're going to spend most of our time in this passage here. I have an observation that we have a, tenden a tendency, a human inclination, sort of a phenomenon, in which in our, in our human nature, when things are going well, we are fast to credit ourselves for it. Whether it is in our personal life, in our professional development, in our work, in our home. When things are going right, it's like, ah, of course, it's because I'm, I have things handled. I have things squared away. While we disproportionately attribute things that are not going well to something outside of ourselves. Things are going good. Hey, look how good I am. Things are not going well. Ah, like somebody else could just do this better. And hilariously enough, I found myself, after I wrote this down, thinking about it, like, well, I could think of others that uh, this applies to them. And then, sure enough, it happened to me this morning. As I was taking care of the kids in the morning, making breakfast for them, and I'm, you know, getting things out of the fridge. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm letting my wife sleep in. I'm taking care of the kids. Like, I got this handled. As I'm taking out the eggs, I'm struggling because there's so much stuff on, on top of of the carton of eggs and I drop one. Oh, dang it. If my wife could only put this stuff here better. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is a prime example of what I'm talking about. Things are going good. I'm such a great dad. I'm such a great husband. The moment I'm struggling and I drop an egg in the floor and make a mess, it's my wife's fault. She could only do a better job putting away this stuff and not having so much uh, on top of the or whatever I need to get. If we think about it, that is a silly example, but it's true in many aspects of our lives. Things going well, yay, look at me. Things are going bad, wow, somebody else did something that they should have had. And this tendency then transfer over, transfers over to our relationship with God. When we want to be made right before God, we have a human tendency to want to do something about it, and to want to credit ourselves when in our mind we think we're doing good. Going back to when God first established His covenant with Israel, He made something very clear. God made it very clear why was it that He chose the people of Israel. Then later, God made it very clear why was it that He decided to give them the promised land. We're going to look at a passage here about the latter. 
Deuteronomy chapter 9. It's an extract of verses 4, 5, and the piece of chapter of verse 6. I have that too in the notes, so I'll read it for you. It says, this is God speaking. It says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. See that? Three times God makes it clear. I'm going to do this for you not because of how good you are. Not because of your righteousness. Not because of anything you've done. As a matter of fact, you are a stiff-necked, stubborn, disobedient, rebellious people. See that? So that should bring humility when God is doing something good in our lives. Sure, we have to be diligent. Sure, we have to be good parents, do well in our jobs. That's expected of us, of course. And when the blessing of God comes, let us have the attitude, the character of falling on our face in thanksgiving to God for His graciousness, His goodness. And let us be reminded, like it says here in Deuteronomy, not because of what you have done, not because of how good you are, because in one way or another, we're in rebelliousness with God at all times. So this theme is basically the central message of the gospel. To be made right with God, what is required then is not the righteousness of a person, but a righteousness that is from outside, is, is not in me. It resides outside of the person. In a person, in our human nature, one cannot, one does not come up with this righteousness on our own. It's impossible. Now someone may object and say, well, well wait, a person can't be that bad. Surely if we try hard enough, maybe we could cooperate with God and earn something so that He can then favor us. I've often heard in, in the context of um, business, work, even evangelism, where people say, well, you know, the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. Like, that's not in the Bible. It's actually a quote by Ben Franklin. But that human tendency to want to do something, to want to take credit in order to be right with God, it's not possible. How do we know? Well, let us take a look at the words of Jesus. Mark 7, verses 21 to 23. It says, this is Jesus speaking, describing the nature of men. It says, For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. We want to please something before God. We want to be showing God the goodness that is in our hearts. That's what God sees right there. Let us remember that. This is a sample of what Jesus knows that is in my heart. We refer to this in theology as total depravity. The nature of man is totally depraved. 
we're not as bad as we could be because God's graciousness restricts us from being as bad as we could be. And these characteristics are not learned. This is the default nature of men. Those of us raising small children can attest to this. Did I ever teach my kids to say no? Did I ever teach my kids to disobey? No. It's in their nature. And so it is in ours. So when Paul says he wants to be found in Christ, not having the righteousness of his, of his own, is because he recognizes that the attempt to obtain righteousness through the law, that is through obeying commandments, is impossible. It's not going to happen. And it is why Paul, in this struggle, when he's talking about it in Romans 7, he basically gives up. And he cries out the following sentence. Romans 7, 24. It says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? The Apostle Paul realized that he can't do it. So then we have briefly explored how the righteousness of men, if we attain to go at it ourselves and be made right with God, it's a no-go. Dead on arrival. Can't do it. So then, where can we look to? If we can't do it, and we're condemned if we try to do it ourselves, then what? Well, this is where the hope of looking to Christ, of trusting in Christ for His righteousness, for His goodness, comes into place. This is where we realize that what we don't have, Christ does have. What we cannot accomplish has been done by Jesus. We'll take a quick look at three references. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it reads, For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, sinless, to be sin for us. And therefore, we can attain the righteousness of God. Romans 8, 3. It reads, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. See, typically, ourselves, our human nature, our flesh, is condemned. We can't do it. But there, when God the Father sends the Son, that becomes reversed. God condemns sin in the flesh, which is impossible to do with a natural human person. So now we start to see where can we look to for the righteousness that is required to be right with God. Then one more reference. 1 John 3, 5. It says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him, that is Jesus, there is no sin. Right? Jesus has no sin. You want to talk about sinless perfection? Is it possible? Yes. Only in Jesus. Jesus is, sin, is sinless. Never sinned. Never was He the seed found in His mouth. That's First Peter reads. So, what do we see then? Man, in our own nature, in our own humanity, 
We are sinful from the get-go. We cannot please God. We have no righteousness of our own. Versus Jesus, the God-man. Jesus is sinless. Jesus does not sin. He never sinned. And he does please God the Father. Jesus then has the righteousness required to be made, be made right with God. And the next question then, I don't have what it takes. Jesus does. So how do I get that righteousness? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's our second point. Being found in Christ then, having the righteousness of Christ, depends on faith. And that's our second point. So let's take a look at the second half there, the, the ending part of verse 9. It says, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is where the inability of man is met with the provision of God. I can do it. I don't have it. I can't buy it. Upon realizing that, then God provides in Christ what is needed in order for us to be made right. And that depends on faith. Let us take a look at a couple of references. Romans 3, 21 and 22a. It says, But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, righteousness of God is not made manifest for all who believe in Jesus. Similarly, Romans 1.17 says, For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. And then lastly, Genesis 15.6, which is also quoted in Romans. It says, And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So then, the inability of men to please God, to be made right with Him, is met with God's own provision, God providing Himself in the person of Christ, hence making the perfection of Christ available, being given out freely by faith to those who believe, to those who trust in Jesus, to those who, like Paul, exchange all in order to gain Christ. Now notice, that righteousness is not applied to all. It says, to those who believe. Okay? And this is where the gospel applies the discrimination. There are those people that are called and belong to Christ. And there are those that do not. Okay? So, an overly inclusive message, which is very popular in Christendom these days, is not biblical. The righteousness of Christ, in order to be made right with God, so that when we die, if somebody says, well, he or she is in a better place, and it's actually true, only applies to those who believe in Christ. Now, that's difficult. Why? Because we, in our human tendency to want to do something, to want to take credit for stuff, we must lay that down. And that takes a lot of humility to give in our pride and set that aside. And in the context of Paul saying these things, 
He's talking about religious people, okay? Let alone anybody outside Christianity who doesn't believe in God. This is talking about people like us who believe we're right with God, who believe we are pleasing God. Any self-righteousness must be put to death. And that's very difficult. So then, this passage takes a what seems to be sort of a weird turn. And then Paul talks about the resurrection. So let us go to point number three. He says, being found in Christ then implies a physical resurrection. This is the future state. Let us read those two verses, Philippians 3, 10 and 11. It says, that I, may, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So interesting turn here, Paul. As a strain of thought of trusting in Christ, by having the righteousness required to be right with God, and one may think, all right, well, if I do that, I'm good. But then Paul takes his turn and now is talking about that he will attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? So before we consider that and explore the resurrection, let us first note here that, let us note that Paul acknowledges that in the short run, by giving up his credentials before men and following Christ, it means that he will suffer. And in the span of things, that suffering is short term. That is, in this life. Let us be reminded of what Jesus told Paul, or Jesus spoke of Paul, in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, when he knocked him off his, off his horse, literally. Words of Jesus says, For I will show him, that is Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Okay. So Paul knows that following Jesus, giving up all that he has, humanly speaking, will mean suffering. Again, in Romans 8, verses 17 and 18, it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So now we link the two. Suffering, having a mind set on the long term, which is going to be the glory to come. The path of the Christian before reaching the final destination, the resurrection of death, consists of suffering, suffering, suffering. There's no shortcuts. That suffering in the life of a Christian typically will take place because of following Christ himself or due to the providence of God in our lives. Hardships, sickness, trials, tragedies, which in God's sovereignty, He is molding us, shaping us in order that we may depend and trust in Him and in Him alone. So before we attain that resurrection, that glorified state, there's a desert that we must cross, and that's suffering. 
Now, about the resurrection. Often, Christians are accused that we are too spiritual and we don't really care about the physical, about the tangible. And I'd say nothing could be further than the truth about that aspect. The physical is very important to God. But what comes first is suffering. And then comes the physicality, the tangible aspect of the resurrection. Spiritual well-being, being right with God through the righteousness of Christ, will lead to a physical resurrection. Now when we think about that, this is what every human heart, every human being alive today and of the past, ultimately longs for. The defeat of death. I've spoken about how many efforts in our own time are ongoing right now. Whether home remedies or all types of diets and medicine. And then to the extreme of very advanced research. With the purpose of what? Of turning the clock back. Of being able to extend our lifetimes, our lifespan. And it doesn't take long to realize that that's because in our human nature we want to expand our years. We want to enlarge our life. We want to be able to not age and live longer. Well, guess what? When we turn to other things instead of God, we've lost concept of the truth that God has that covered. God has that covered for us already. But it doesn't come yet. It comes until the end. That's what we refer to as the glorification. The resurrection of the body of believers. But that cannot be attained unless we have justification and sanctification. What does that mean? Well, first we must be justified. Being declared righteous before God. Being born again. Being saved. And that's by faith alone. That's what we've been talking about. How, how are we made right with God? Through no doing of our own. Through trusting in the righteousness and provision of God through Christ. We are justified. We call upon the name of the Lord and we will be saved. There's no prerequisites. Now then comes sanctification. That's a day-to-day -day battle. That is the wrestling that we experience in our Christian walk. Where we are being made more and more into the image of Christ and His character while still living in this fallen world. That's hard. It may bring doubts like, am I even in Christ? This is difficult. But my dear brothers and sisters, be reminded... If you're struggling, if you're fighting, if you're getting up, if you're frustrated, if you cry out to God because you can't, that's a sign that you're alive. You're kicking, you're fighting. And that's the hope that we have in the sanctification that God is molding and shaping us. And the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us alone because we are His. Even if He disciplines us, we are in that battle. And Christ is walking with us through it. Justification, be made right by faith. Just and then sanctification. The daily battle that we are in right now.
And as a matter of fact, being in that sanctification fight and producing fruit is actually proof that we have been justified. We're not trying to be sanctified in order to be justified. No, it's the other way around. Because we are justified, we are in fight. And then, now, after that, at the end of our life, when we come and meet the Lord, on the day of the resurrection, now glorification. Then comes glorification. The final state, when the bodies of believers are physically resurrected into a perfect state. Just like the body of Jesus, the same body that He was crucified and died in. That same body, glorified, rose again. That is the promise to all of us. That we're going to have that resurrected, glorified body, just like the body of Jesus. That should fill us with joy. Because many, without knowing, chase after wanting to attain a fake glorification state in this lifetime. That's referring to what we just talked about. Wanting to make this life longer and healthier. And Don't get me wrong, it's... It's good to be able to, to make efforts to be healthy. But if we are honest, how many times don't we get carried away trying to attain some sort of fake glorification in the here and the now while ignoring and tossing away the things of the Lord? The desire that we have to have that glorification is alive in us. But we cannot go about it by our own efforts, by trying to make it happen here in this world. That's impossible. It will lead us away from Christ. And when death knocks on our door, we will be found chasing after the things of this world and not in Christ. Are you found in Christ today? This world offers temporary health. Jesus offers an eternal glorified body. This world offers temporary wealth. Jesus offers full riches that cannot corrode, that thieves cannot steal, because those treasures are in heaven. This world offers temporary pleasures, while Jesus offers everlasting joy pleasure in knowing Him. Now this world offers temporary comfort. And many of us, the whole world is seek after temporary comfort. Now Jesus offers, get this, trials, tribulation, persecutions, humiliations, death, but in exchange for that eternal glorified state that everybody's chasing after, that's what Christ offers. The glorification stage, ultimately, that every human heart longs for. So that it is very telling here that Paul, emphasizing a justification by faith, closes this thought with mentioning that being found in Christ, being spiritually right before God, by faith in Christ, will result in a physical gain. See that? Christians don't care about the physical. Yes, we do. And we better. We better be reminded that we do. But let us not focus in the here and the now, the fake glorification that every human heart longs for. That's a counterfeit. We should long for the eternal glorification stage, which does not come 
without suffering. It is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. This is why when a brother or sister in the Lord dies, although we grieve, it doesn't say don't grieve, but we don't grieve like those that have no hope. Because we know that that's just a step in the process so that those that belong in Christ, those who are found in Christ, need to go through in order to have that glorified state that Paul talks about. So that we too may gain, may accomplish, not by our own works, but by what Christ did, the resurrection from the dead. This is only true for those who are found in Christ. Make no mistake. Who do not have, who do not claim a righteousness of their own, but who come to God with a contrite spirit and acknowledge, Lord, I can't do it. Save me. I have nothing. And unless you have mercy on me and give me the righteousness of Christ, I'm lost. So then are you found in Christ today? May this help us then to reflect and to cry out to Jesus for His grace, for His forgiveness, so that we can say today and the day that we meet Him that yes, I am found in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this morning, for the reminder that we see in the book of Philippians chapter 3. That before you there's no such thing as human righteousness in order to be made right with you, to be justified. And that the goodness we need is the goodness of Christ, which is perfection. The only thing that you'll accept. Let us cry out to Jesus then to save us, to give us faith. In order that we may attain, we may attain the glorified state that Paul speaks about here which will be possible only by the merits of Christ and which can gain only by an intervention of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our hearts. We pray you make this true in our lives today, Lord Jesus. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.